Galatians 3, 10 through 22. For all who rely on works of the law are under a curse, for it is written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. Now it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law, for the righteous shall live by faith. But the law is not of faith, rather the one who does them shall live by them. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us, for it is written, Cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. So that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles, so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. To give a human example, brothers, even with a man-made covenant, no one annuls it or adds to it once it has been ratified. Now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say, and to offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one and to your offspring, who is Christ. This is what I mean. The law, which came 430 years afterward, does not annul a covenant previously ratified by God so as to make the promise void. For if the inheritance comes by the law, it no longer comes by promise, but God gave it to Abraham by a promise. Why then the law? It was added because of transgressions until the offspring should come to whom the promise had been made, and it was put in place through angels by an intermediary. Now an intermediary implies more than one, but God is one. Is the law then contrary to the promises of God? Certainly not. For if a law had been given that could give life, then righteousness would indeed be by the law. But the scripture imprisoned everything under sin so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. Reading God's word. Let's do a dance. do si do Thank you. We are starting the book of Matthew today. Gospel of Matthew. We're going to be there for a while. We're... We're going to have a, it's going to be a great run. So why are we reading Galatians? Well, you'll have to just wait a little while. Why are we reading Galatians starting Matthew? A number of years ago, I was in New York. I'm uh, sorry, I was in Chicago. Last weekend, I was in New York. A uh, number of years ago, I was in Chicago. I was visiting my brother-in-law, and uh, I was, at that time, Nancy and I lived in Orlando, Florida, and I was, uh, had to lead worship that morning at the church where we served, and uh, so Saturday afternoon, after having a wonderful time with my brother-in-law, I went to Midway Airport to, uh, to jump on a Southwest air flight. And the thunderstorms rolled in about 1 or 2 o'clock when my flight was supposed to take off. If any of you have flown out of Chicago, not unusual. So we just chilled in the uh, uh, airport there for a while at 2 and at 3 and at 4 and at 5. And the thunderstorms kept coming. And the flight, as many of you experience in your travel... 8, 9, finally at about 9.30, I was thinking they were going to say, you know, we'll, we'll pay for a hotel room. No, flight's about to take off. Okay, whatever, be home at midnight, 11.30, whatever. Told Nancy, go to bed, I'll see you in the morning, just I don't know when I'll get home. So next thing I know, they say, you know, because of all the thunderstorms, we're going to have to go around and do some short flights to catch up and pick up a lot of people. So 
we end up in St. Louis and in Little Rock. And I don't usually sleep on planes, but by about 2 in the morning, I'm really getting tired. And so I remember I, I nodded off. It was one of those not deep sleep, but I was just and the, to the sound of someone saying, Welcome to Jackson, Mississippi. And I remember thinking, <laughs> I don't want to be in Jackson, Mississippi. I'm not sure quite what happened. I went to sleep in Chicago and I woke up in Jackson. And, you know, that, that, that fuzzy feeling in your brain when you're not quite sure where, why you are, where you are. And then a few seconds later, oh, yeah, okay, I guess I'm still bumping along. And then next stop, Orlando. And by about five, I was in Orlando to get up at seven for the first service at the church. Don't feel sorry for me. It was a long time ago. I was young. <laughs> All that to say... I want you to turn now to Matthew chapter 1. Here is how the book of Matthew opens, and I'll tie this together brilliantly in just a second. (laughs) The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac. Isaac was the father of Jacob. Jacob, the father of Judah and his brothers. All right, no, no lying now. When I, if I asked you to read Matthew 1, and this is where we were, how many of you would really start at verse 18? Now, the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. Because, see, I didn't want to be in Jackson. I wanted to be in Orlando. And when you open the Gospel of Matthew, who do you want to read about? Jesus, he doesn't show up until verse 18. So why am I in Jackson? Why am I reading the Old Testament in the New Testament? And I don't know who Aminadab and Shealtiel are anyway. It doesn't matter. So fess up. How many of you start when you read Matthew 1, you really just jump to Matthew 18? I do, right? I think, oh yeah, it's one of those genealogies. That's about as much shrift as I give Matthew 1, 1 through 18. But you see, if I had said in Midway at Chicago, if I had said, I want to get to Orlando, and they said, well, you got to go through Jackson to get there, I would have said, oh, okay, I guess I want to get there. You can't get to Jesus if you don't start where Matthew starts because we miss the entire point of the whole gospel if we miss what he's trying to tell us here in 1, 1 through 18. Look at how he starts. This is a brilliantly constructed book, and we're going to take a little more time in two weeks. I'm going to visit my daughter next week, and Tom Fremont's going to be speaking here. But in, the, uh, in two weeks, when I jump in, we're going to actually, I'm going to try to get a whiteboard and actually look at how, because it's a brilliantly set up book. But we have to start with 1 through 18. It begins the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ. First thing to notice, the word genealogy, if you translate it, it's exactly the same word that as they're translating the the Old Testament, the Septuagint, the Old Testament translated into Greek, word for Genesis, it's the same word for genealogy. What you would read there is in the very first chapter, the very first words, says this is the Genesis. See what we've got? We talk about Old Testament and New Testament. That's a little funky because old seems not as good as new. This is the Hebrew Testament. This is, 
this is our roots. This is like saying, well, the roots of the tree are bad, but the, you know, the, the trunk is good. This is where we spring from. And Matthew is trying to draw a direct line for us, saying the genesis of Jesus and he uses a word that he rarely uses. We, we think of it as, as, as Jesus' last name. His last name is not Christ, but you think of it as Jesus Christ, right? Matthew doesn't use that phrase hardly at all. It means Messiah, anointed one, whatever. But in, in, one, in chapter 1, verse 1, he uses it because this is his point. He's saying all through the Old Testament, the Old Testament is a story of God's rescue plan. That's what the Old Testament is. It's a story of a creator God who created man in his image and a world for him to enjoy, to reflect his glory, but who was marred by sin and, and sends a, a way to rescue us. And everything Matthew's going to point to is to say this is like a, a, an arrow. All the main stories and points of the Old Testament are pointing us to this rescue plan, which is now culminating in this verse, this is the genesis, the beginning of the answer coming to light, Jesus Christ. Remember, we've come out of 400 years of darkness, this intertestamental period where the word of the Lord from Malachi, the last book of the Old Testament, ending about 400 years earlier, there's been this period of nothing. It's like the lights were sort of turned off. You know what happens, right? We turn off the lights for an hour or so. It's like, oh, it's my favorite story. Nancy, I'm going to share this story. We're in, the, we're in this uh, first year of our marriage. We're in this planetarium. And uh, it was like, a, like one of those tents that acts like a planetarium. And uh, we were in there, and they, it was at Wintergreen. And they all funnel like 100 people into this dark thing and then show the stars up. And everybody's just like, and of course, your eyes have completely gotten used to the complete dark. And my bride, a few months into our marriage, thinks, didn't ask me. She thinks to herself, I got to get a picture of this. You know what's coming, right? As the flash goes off and everyone goes, whoa. And you know what happens, right? And this is, this is Matthew 1.1. You see the darkness of the world. And of course, she's apologetic and everyone's going, who was that? And I'm like, I don't know. <laughs> the flash goes off. And the eyes of the world are like, Whoa. The few who saw it, the saddest thing is so many lived in darkness. They, hate, they, they love the darkness, right? That's what the Bible teaches. But we have a flash of light coming that says the genesis, the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah. The answer to every cry of your heart, to the cry of a people, is now here. And then he names two people. Look what it says, verse 1. Chapter 1, verse 1, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Now, if you look in Luke chapter 3, there's another genealogy, and it's different. It starts with Jesus and Joseph and works its way back. And do you know, those of you Bible trivia people, it works its way back to who? Do you know? Adam. If you look at the thing, and it's, it's, it's not necessarily every person. Luke has his own purposes in writing this, but he looks all the way back to Adam for a purpose, but that's not where Matthew starts, is it? He doesn't start with Adam. Who does he start with? He starts with Abraham. We're going to look at a future. We're going to look at why the son of David is so important. 
Three biggies, all right, Old Testament, three characters that sort of stand above most of the rest. You've got Abraham, Moses, and David, and for their own reasons, they stand, you know, uh, uh, pointing to things. And what Matthew's going to tell us in this book is that Abraham, Moses, and David all are arrows pointing to Jesus because he is the fulfillment, the continuation of everything I was doing. And this is the light going off for the Jewish people. Remember, Abraham, founder of the the Jewish faith, the first Jew, the first one called, he's the first arrow, and Jesus is going to be the perfect Abraham. Moses, the lawgiver, Jesus is going to be the perfect teacher. David, the king, the, the mark of the perfect king, Jesus is going to be the perfect king. He's going to, Moses, Matthew is saying the light is going off and your eyes which have been in darkness are just going to go bonkers if you see it. So this morning I want to spend just a little time on the son of Abraham and why he begins with Abraham, the father of Isaac. Now, we're going to get to Galatians really quickly here. The Abraham, okay, in, in some ways you could say that Abraham was a, the first Gentile convert to Judaism. You, you could sort of say that because he wasn't, he didn't start off being one of God's chosen people. God chose him for his own reasons. Abraham wasn't, this is the thing we have to get, it wasn't like God scoured the earth and said, ah, Abraham, he's just the best guy ever. Like, he's the perfect model guy. And so we're going to, you know, choose him. I got something to work with here. There's nothing. He says he's just a guy. For his own purposes, he chooses Abraham. And what does he say, if you want to flip back Genesis 12, where do we start? We don't know hardly anything about Abraham and where he comes from. We know a little bit about his father. We know he came from an idol-worshiping family from you know, not the promised land. What does he say in, in Genesis 12? Just we introduced, he's not even called Abraham yet. He's Abram. The Lord said to Abram, go, go from your country, leave, get out. And your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. Right? So if you know the Bible at all, this is the sort of first thing is I got a land for you to go to. So get out, Go. First thing I just want you to see, again, I'm not saying Matthew's drawing all these parallels, but, but we, we've got to see that, Jesus, that the, the, the Bible points to Jesus. What we know is Jesus is called from his Father's house, from his Father's glory, sitting at the right hand, and is sent to a land he didn't know. I mean, he knows it in the sense of he's creator God, but this, this isn't where Jesus belongs. He wasn't born to wear human flesh in terms of that God himself comes. This is his mercy to us is he does come. He leaves his father's house. He leaves his kindred. He leaves and he comes to be with us. And Philippians 2 tells us he emptied himself of Godness. And so he lives by faith. He lives as the perfect human. He lives as Abraham was called to live. Going back to Genesis 12, he says, I'm going to make of you a great nation. 
and I'll bless you. I'm going to make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I'll bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth will be blessed. Can you hear those words with not Abraham in mind, but Jesus? Because see, there is no way or access or blessing in this life unless it's through Jesus Christ. And Abraham points us to this, and he is the human that is this paradigm. It's this picture of what's happening. Now, let's go to Galatians. And maybe you did or maybe you didn't pick up on a few of these phrases as Sarah read them, and I'll point out even a few more going beyond in Galatians where she read. But if you've got your Bible, you can turn to Galatians chapter 3. And I'm going to pick out a couple of the verses that she read. Look at verse 14. We've just found out that cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree because Christ became that curse of sin, right? And the mark of that was his hanging on the cross. Why? Verse 14, so that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of who? Abraham might come to who? The Gentiles. That's us. Except you're kind of Jewish now, right? You say, what, is, what does this all matter to me? I'm not Jewish. Well, you, you kind of are if you're a Christian because it, the Romans teaches we were grafted in to this promise. It came to a people who weren't that great in and of themselves. God wanted to show his greatness Deuteronomy 7, he says, it wasn't because you were a great people that I chose you to the Jews, but, but the least of all people to show my greatness. And that's us. We get grafted into that. And so he says, in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we might receive the promised spirit. The spirit of what? The Holy Spirit of Jesus through faith. Point number two, how did Abraham access the promises of God? Through being a great guy? Through obeying the law? Oh, the law is hundreds of years away. You thought about that? Abraham had no law to obey. The way Moses, the Mosaic law, that's hundreds of years later. So how did Abraham please God? By faith. So, In the very smallest sense, the Abraham covenant and promise has this little condition in it. It's an unconditional promise in the sense of God chose Abraham and God chooses us. But this condition is you have to believe. You can't just believe intellectually and say, yeah, I guess there's a Jesus. I guess there's a God. You've got to, like Glenn said, experiential, demonstrable faith. If you believe it, it'll change your life. If if you don't choose to obey... You don't believe. That's the way the Bible lays out pistis, the Greek word for faith. It's it's an experiential faith. And so he says, Abraham is our model of faith. Did Jesus Christ have to have faith in God? Well, he knew God. He completely depended on God. He trusted his father 100%. Unlike us, he didn't have that same sense of sin nature that we struggle with. But absolutely, one of the ways he, I think he emptied himself is he had to operate by faith, saying, God, I trust you. Right? There on the cross, Lord, into your hands I commit my spirit. 
Not, not as I will, but as you will. This is faith. And so he is the perfect Abraham. Jesus operates completely by faith and says, we should as well. Abraham, let me just tell you this. We, if, my, my wife said this to me this week. I don't know if she got it from somewhere else, but it's, it's so true. Our circumstances so often dictate our theology. You know what I mean by that? He said, oh, I trust God, I trust God, I trust God. And then, like, my, 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 dog, my dog got mauled this week by a neighbor dog, or last week by a neighbor dog. And, like, there was part we had to sort of say, whoa, why did this happen? And that's a pretty minor thing. But it was, for us, kind of traumatic. We love our little doggy. But you know what? You walk along and say, oh, God's good, God's good. And then the storm comes, and you run into stuff, and like, boom, and you're like, oh, well, God can't be good. Why? Your theology, your circumstances dictate your theology, right? Look at Abraham's life, and one of the things you say is God says, okay, Abraham, you're doing really, really well. I want your son. Let's take him up to a mountaintop and, um, and kill him. Okay, I think I need a re- I, I think my systematic theology doesn't have a chapter on killing your children, Lord. So uh, clearly we need to have a discussion or you need to read my systematic theology, which has the no children clause, because don't touch my child, right? Believe me, as a parent, God touches my child, right? He's going to have some splaining to do, as Ricky Ricardo or Lucy Ricardo would say, right? You got some splaining, Ricky, splaining to do. Then who's God? You. And it's an ugly world if you're God. So if your circumstances dictate your theology and say, well, God, I lost my job, so clearly you're no provider, you're no Jehovah Jireh for me. But God says exactly the opposite. I bring circumstances into your life so that your theology isn't dependent upon them, but that everything that can be shaken away will be shaken away because you see all this stuff, it's just really temporary. It's Ecclesiastes, right? It's just, I am eternal. And I presented this life for you to learn to trust me and love me to figure out at the end of it all, I'm the only one you'll have to love because I'm the only one who's ever always loved you and I always will. And this is Abraham. And he didn't let his theology be determined by the circumstances. He says, okay, God, I may not understand it, but Isaac, let's go up to the mountain. And then what do we have? The most beautiful picture in perhaps the Old Testament as he's about to sacrifice his son. And he says, Abraham, you haven't withheld what you value from me. I myself will provide the sacrifice. And 2,000 years later, his own son, that arm didn't stop the knife from killing And his own son, God killed on your behalf and my behalf because he's the perfect Abraham. Do you get that? Do you see the picture? And this is all in verse 1. He's the son of Abraham. We haven't even gotten to the son of David yet. I want you to go... To one more place with me. In Hebrews chapter 2. Got your Bible. You can turn with me or I'll just read it to you. In the 
book of Hebrews, almost at the end of the New Testament. The writer of Hebrews says this. I'm going to start at verse 15. God delivers all those who through the fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. For surely it is not angels that God helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Therefore he, that is Jesus, had to be made like his brothers in every respect. See, Jesus is fully human. And you want to look at what God's like, and you say, well, he's just too out there. You want to look how God would be a parent or how God would be a, a, a full fully a full human, we have a picture in Jesus. This is why we're studying Matthew. We're going to look at how this Messiah, this one who fulfills every promise, lives for us and can live through us. Go back to the book of Galatians, if you will, and we're going to close with this. This is just a great thing because I think it's it's a verse that many of us know and have seen, but I think we miss some of the biggest purpose of this verse. Listen to this in Galatians chapter 3 at the end, verse 27. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. That's what we're talking about. Put on Jesus Christ. As a human, we get to identify with he, him who is fully human. Therefore, there's neither Jew nor Greek, there's neither slave nor free, there's neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. Sometimes I think we stop there and we use that as a way of talking about equality, right? It's a big thing in our, in our generation, and it's good. There's a lot of good stuff in there, you know, the, the equality of stuff. But I think we missed, that's not the last verse. Read with me. This, that was verse 28, here's verse 29. And if you are Christ's, then you are what? Abraham's children or offspring and your heirs according to the promise. Heirs, H-E-I-R-S, inheritance. We all like the word inheritance, don't we? Heirs. The promise of Genesis 3, being a son of Abraham, being a Christian, all these things you may say, well, I just don't see how that relates to me. If I told you you were the heir, we just discovered, ta-da, you were the heir to Elon Musk's fortune. Would that matter to you? Would you care if you're a direct descendant or to Rockefeller or some incredible pot of wealth? Would that matter to you? I dare say it would. You would be checking it out, right? And he says, look, in Jesus, it's not because you're a Jew, not because you're a man if you lived in a patriarchal society, not because you're a progenitor, the, the oldest son. That's what he's saying. He's saying it's not because of, of these things. The point is, if you do what Abraham did, which is just believe, and show your belief by your trust that you're the heir to the greatest fortune ever told, which is to God himself. To all the riches of this life, you're the heir through Abraham's promise. A land 
talks about a seed, the seed, the promise of that, and the promise that through you, as through Christ, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. We're going to have a great time in Matthew. Would you pray with me, please? Lord, I thank you for your word to us and the fact that you are good all the time, and you've given us, Lord, great and precious promises. So, Father, I ask you at this time that you'd make us aware of how the fact that we are Abraham's children, that you, the perfect Abraham, coming to live on our behalf, have made it all right. Father, I thank you that as the Abrahamic covenant, that promise was unconditional in the sense of the only thing needed to do was simply believe it was true. Everything else is provided. Lord, and that you chose Abraham for no good reason other than you wanted to demonstrate your love. So you have in the new covenant demonstrated this unconditional promise that if we will receive you, Lord, to as many as received him, he became the right, the power to become children of God, that we're now heirs, full heirs, when we receive what you have called us to, undeserved, and yet you make it happen because of your mercy. Lord, and so we celebrate this unconditional promise that you make happen that we don't have to bear the weight of our sin, that we don't have to live in guilt, that we don't have to suffer from so much because you have made a way, showing that that's true because on the night you were betrayed, you took bread, and after you'd given thanks, you broke it and you gave it to your disciples, and you said, take and eat, this is my body broken for you. And then after supper, you took a cup of wine gave it to your disciples and said, drink this, all of you. This is my blood of this new covenant. It is shed for you and for many for the forgiveness of sins. As often as you do it, do it in remembrance of me. So, Lord, we take these elements, we take this bread and this wine and honor you in all that we are and all that you have promised to us. We receive it in full in Jesus' name. Amen. Could I ask those who are serving the elements this morning, Tom and Sandy, could you come up and do that? At Living Hope, you're welcome to receive. If you're a believer in Christ Jesus, you're, you're more than welcome to receive this meal. Come having confessed your sin to the Lord and doing everything we can to make right what sin is broken, and then he brings us all the way home. So as we share this meal together, let's celebrate his goodness to us. After you have received the elements, I would encourage you to, to be prayed for. And what we're going to do is there's a ramp out that last, out that little exit right there. Just go up the ramp, and there's a little space up there, a little cafeteria area, and there'll be people up there to pray. Let them spend some time praying with you. It's amazing what God would do when you join with other believers, when two or three are gathered together. So just at the top of that ramp, there'll be some people to pray with you.